I don't know. I feel like this baby's never going to show up, so I'll come. I'll come podcast on Tuesday if I can. Don't, no. <laughs> are I need you doing something this, to do. Are you doing this to induce the baby? Like, yes. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Maddie Glacius, here with uh, Dara Lynn, Sarah Cliff, who threatened threatened to have a baby on us and not show up today. Still here, <laughs> unfortunately. Still. We did not, sadly, pick today's episode for ultimate drama if Sarah had <laughs> went into labor in the middle of the episode. I think that'd be drama enough. Yeah, fair enough. We're ready. We're ready to move on without you. But we were- I am, I am also, I share this feeling. <laughs> Um, Tuesday, there were a, a lot of elections, uh, primaries in New Jersey, uh, South Dakota, uh, California, big state. A lot of important stuff for the midterms happened. But there was also a vote uh, that was not that important for the midterms, but is interesting and gets us into some interesting terrain. And that is that Aaron Persky, is a judge in California, uh, was successfully recalled basically over a single case and not over you know, classical misconduct. And once you say this is part of the California recall process, like Gray Davis, the governor, was recalled basically for raising taxes on car permits. A state senator in California from a swing district who voted to raise the gas tax got recalled because people don't like paying gas taxes. So it's not like out of the scope of things that happen in California for somebody to be recalled just because people For a judge to be recalled, that is – Quite unusual. Right. I mean, for a judge to be recalled at all is quite unusual. And like officially, it's not that like the formal petition of recall said he screwed up this one case. But so in theory, the electorate could have been thinking about, gee, what is his record like as a judge? But that's not really what the conversation was about. That's pretty clearly not why most of the people who voted to boot him out voted to boot him out. So we were around just like, what was this case? So back in 2016, the trial was in March, the sentencing was in June, but, you know, the first half of 2016, there was a a case called the Stanford Rape Case or the Stanford Swimmer Rape Case, not to, to get too graphic about this, but a varsity swimmer at Stanford was prosecuted for sexual assault in a case where the details were pretty clearly gruesome. And he claimed that she had all but consented. She claimed that she had been incapacitated and unable to consent. And the case became a national scandal when she gave a very, very searing and personal and emotionally powerful victim statement at his sentencing hearing. And then he was sentenced to three months in jail uh, and lifetime registration on the sex offender list, because in California, that's what happens when you're convicted of that crime. So a lot of the anger at this was devoted to the judge who had signed off on that sentence. It gave the impression that he was being treated with leniency because he was a young white male, because he was a varsity athlete, all of the kind of cliche, he has a bright future ahead of him that often raises its head in cases where young people are accused of sexual assault, seem to have played into the sentencing here. And it turns out is not the actual policy background of the case. The judge listened to the sentencing recommendation of the probation committee that put together a probation report recommending a certain sentence under California laws and regulations. 
the judge basically just signed off on that. But the narrative became that there had been this case of special favor for someone because there isn't enough punishment of sexual assault in general and because particular offenders, those who are white and privileged, get treated better in the justice system as a rule. And so I think the recall, like one thing we want to talk about here is it's raised some tensions and questions between like how we think about the prosecution of sexual assault offenders and how we deal with the people doing that prosecution. So you saw this movement, it seems like largely led by a professor at Stanford that um, Julia Yaffe at Huffington Post has written a wonderful profile of that I would highly recommend, who essentially began crusading on this recall idea that it started seeking financing, got a lot of high profile people to sign on. Um, a lot of top Democrats, Lena Dunham gave her support to this recall Persky movement. Basically, the idea, which, you know, I totally understand how it becomes salient, is that he let this guy off too easy and, and we're not going to find that acceptable, that we are going to get this guy recalled. We're going to get somebody else in because we want somebody who is going to give stricter, longer sentences to sexual assault offenders. And, and furthermore, I think, yeah. this you know, part of the campaign as well was because we're mobilizing in response to this particular case, other judges yes. are going to see that this kind of leniency in these circumstances is not what the public wants and are going to start treating the offenders that they are now letting off the hook with less leniency. Like the idea that it was going to be a deterrent was there from the beginning, but it was kind of the people pushing the campaign always thought of it in terms of we are communicating clearly that you shouldn't let off varsity swimmers. Right. <laughs> well, yes. And – the animating impulse here, right, is a notion that sort of preppy rapists are not treated like real violent criminals in the system. That like in a sense, Brock Turner and a class of people to whom Brock Turner is a member are treated almost as if they are – the real victims in this kind of situation that like you're on campus, there's a lot of booze and partying, stuff happens and oh, now this promising young man's life could be ruined. And like there was a desire to deliver like a clear statement that that is not like what California wants from the criminal justice system. And we've seen a lot of things that are not judicial recall elections like driven around the idea that like we want – universities and the criminal justice system to take much more seriously the idea that students on campus are being assaulted by I don't know what you would call them but like 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 nice young men basically not like quote unquote nice young men but yes. not not like not like scary rapists lurking right. in the bushes but like stanford students in good standing Right. 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 I, yeah. This definitely ties into both the stuff that is kind of crystallized under Me Too that, you know, sexual assault and misconduct that happens within interpersonal relationships is something that really hurts women in the short and long term and that it needs to be taken seriously. And the kind of opening awareness of the inequities of the criminal justice system, which are backed up by lots and lots and lots of research about the different ways that various actors, judges, prosecutors, et cetera, treat white defendants versus non-white defendants. Both of those kind of crystallized. But as you said, Matt, it wasn't just the judicial recall. There were actually like changes to sentencing policy that were passed as a result of this case. It's it's kind of been a multi-pronged attack. 
And the recall of Persky kind of comes at the tail end of that as kind of a stinger on it. Right. So, okay, let's take a break and then let's talk about the broader implications of electing judges, recalling judges, etc. Studies show that four out of ten people don't have any life insurance at all. And, you know, it's understandable. It's, it's not their fault. It's life insurance's fault. Shopping for life insurance, it's confusing. It takes forever. You know, people don't want to get taken advantage of. They, they don't want to be kind of like suckers on it, so, so they don't buy anything because they don't know how to get the right thing. But Policy Genius is the answer. It's an easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes with Policy Genius, you can compare quotes from the top insurers and find the best policy for you. Uh, when you compare quotes, you save money, you know you're getting a good deal, and it's incredibly simple. So Policy Genius so far has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance. They placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So here's what you need to know. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, don't put it off any longer. It's never been easier to buy. Rates are at a 20-year low. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to buy and compare life insurance. If you like listening to Vox podcasts, you are going to really love our new show, our Vox show on Netflix. It's called Explained because we like to explain things. And every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that topic is cryptocurrency. I've seen it. I love it. I think you will too. Christian Slater narrates it, which is frankly an upgrade from listening to me. It's fascinating. Uh, You know, it answers the question like, why are people betting on cryptocurrency? This is Bitcoin. You've probably heard about Bitcoin. If you're a normal person, you're probably confused about what it is. Uh, This episode explains what they are, how they work, breaks down the history of real currencies and how cryptocurrencies fit in. It explores why people love digital cash, basically for illegal stuff. There's like a mathematical underpinning of this. It's called the Byzantine generals problem. It's a simple way to understand the technology that cryptocurrencies are based on. And again, Christian Slater, it's amazing. So go find it on Netflix, search for Vox, or just go to straight to netflix.com slash explained. So I'm going to put my cards on the table here because Matt already did on Twitter earlier in the week. I don't love this at all. I personally think that electing judges is a bad idea, period. I think that recalling judges is probably a bad idea over and above electing judges. And I think that the odds of this actually having the effect that its defenders wanted of sending the very specific message that it's not that you shouldn't be lenient, but you shouldn't be lenient against privileged defendants in sexual assault cases. I don't think that that message is going to be successfully communicated. If you look at Persky's actual record, the AP did an analysis and he stopped hearing criminal cases as all this kind of controversy was going on. So he actually has a pretty short record of hearing cases. It's only about two years or so. Over that time, in 20 cases where he was responsible for sentencing a defendant, which like is not a lot of cases. And then if you think about the fact that he was only doing this in seven cases after trials, that's an even lower number of cases. So like small sample size here. But in all of those cases, he adhered to the probation committee's recommendation. So the process that he followed in the Brock Turner case of like, yeah, they say you should only get a few months. I'm going to sign off on this. You should only get a few months is a consistent thing. Now, on the one hand, there are other examples of him with college athletes in particular doing other things as a judge that demonstrated a weird amount of sympathy or nice young man leniency. Uh, There was one case where he was willing to be flexible so that 
a student who was at Hawaii could like finish the season or whatever. That kind of does play into the idea that this particular judge had a blind spot when it comes to a particular kind of cases. On the other hand, the other professionals who dealt with him, both defenders and prosecutors, agreed that he was across the board more sympathetic to defendants in like behavior than you would necessarily expect the average judge to be. That like, yeah, he wasn't doling out much shorter sentences than the probation committee told him to, but he was demonstrating at trial in sentencing that whether or not they were young white men, whether or not they were being accused of sexual assault, were actually in a position that they could remake their lives if given the chance. And so taking somebody like that off the bench could send a message of, yeah, maybe don't treat college athletes with particular like respect, but it could also send the message of don't treat defendants with respect. Why would you treat defendants with respect if one case is likely to blow up in your face? I think that there's kind of an idea out there that because this hasn't happened before or hasn't happened in decades, it's not going to be something that judges are going to worry about. It's also, I think, possibly the case that like judges could worry about it. And I think the response judges are going to have is like, an open question that's not necessarily settled. Right. I mean, if I were a judge and I saw this happen, like, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, it hasn't happened in a while, so this is fine. I'd be like, holy shit, this is starting to happen. (laughs) This seems like something I am concerned about losing the job that I hold. I found this piece that um, you could read on a great website called Vox.com from Rachel Marshall, who's a public defender in California, kind of pretty helpful in understanding how someone like who works in this system thinks about this. Um, and, and, you know, there's one paragraph I thought was pretty useful that kind of gets to some of the themes that Dara's talking about, where she writes, and this is, you know, again, a public defender in California, saying that the recall sends a dangerous message to judges everywhere. If we don't like one decision you make, you're out. That represents a terrible threat to judicial independence and highlights the problems with electing judges or subjecting appointed judges to re-election. They need the protection to think independently, even if they sometimes make decisions we don't like. And she is very clearly not making an argument in favor of the sentence that in this particular case, she is making an argument against the recall of judges. And I think we talked about this once in the weeds before, but this weird mixed system we have right now for creating our judicial bench where we can't quite seem to decide if it is better to appoint or elect judges. And we kind of see like states taking a whole variety of approaches, even like the really weird mixed one of appointing judges, but then like having them run for re-election, which kind of like is, I guess, the middle option if you can't choose. There seems to be decent evidence um, that election and recall seem to create some negative incentives in our judicial system that you tend to see. And um, John Paff, um, who I believe is at Fordham, was tweeting a little bit about this earlier this week, about judges becoming more serious in their sentencing leading up to an election, suggesting that they're thinking about elections and thinking exactly what Dara is saying, that better err on the side of harsher. It is more likely than not that like I will have some kind of negative happen to me if I have a criminal out and about versus, you know, leaning on the side of leniency and treating people with decency. So I think that suggests that like judges certainly are thinking about these things. There's some 
other research that I don't know quite as well, but I thought was pretty interesting, that elections just tend to draw a less qualified pool of judges, that the people who you end up with as judges tend to be less qualified for their positions. And I guess that makes sense when you think of like anyone who is the person who decides themselves, like, yes, I should be a judge versus someone who is like appointed by someone else who says like, yeah, you look good enough to be a judge. But it's really a space where it feels like we haven't really made up our mind about how we want to create our judiciary. So we have this mixed system that is different state by state, different from, you know, how we do our Supreme Court, how we do the courts that feed up into that. It's it's a pretty mixed system that, you know, those decisions actually matter a lot for what kind of justice we're getting. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is not just a judge thing either. I mean, there's more consistent treatment of prosecutors. Prosecutors are consistently elected at the state and county levels. But those incentives are for punitiveness. Like, you know, I think it's a little bit easy in a criminal justice reform era to assume that, like, because there are lots of people who think that the current criminal justice system is too harsh, they'll, like, punish individuals who do harsh things. Like, there has never been, to my knowledge, an attack ad saying this innocent person (laughs) was sentenced to 20 years for a first-time nonviolent offense. How freaking terrible is that? Like, you could imagine that, right? Like, a woman just got her sentence commuted by President Trump thanks to Kim Kardashian this week because the facts of that case seemed so obviously sympathetic. But, like, what you do have consistently is the decisions that this person made as an actor in the criminal justice system led to somebody being on the streets who shouldn't have been. And like if the Willie Horton ad aired today, I think a lot of people would be outraged about the racial implications of having this like pair of, you know, black man's hands and talking about a horrific murder and, you know, saying that it's the fault of the person who allowed him to be on parole or furlong, I guess. But I think that the DNA of those kind of attacks are still very much in the politics of the system. And we're beginning to see some reformers win primaries in like local prosecutor elections, but we're not seeing the kind of one wrong decision to be harsh on someone can ruin your career. I feel like John Pfaff and his book has like driven progressive writers completely insane and has created a like bizarre way in which we talk about this. Like I feel like there's like a strong case against electing judges. But to say that the problem with electing judges is that electing judges induces them to hand out the harsh sentences that people favor is like that's a terrible argument. And like the specifics of this Brock Turner case, like I sort of agree that like public officials should not be subject to electoral recall at all and that possibly judges should not be elected at all. The fact of the matter is, though, like you do politics in the system that you have, right? Like when George Soros is running the campaign to get reformist DAs elected in Philadelphia, he doesn't say, well, really the whole system of electing DAs is a bad one. So I'm going to put my money into a constitutional amendment to get Pennsylvania to do, you know, an appointed prosecutor system. He's like, look, there's elections. We try to win the election. Uh, This judge in the Brock Turner case, he sends a guy to three months in prison for raping a young woman, seemingly because he has an unusual sympathy to college athletes. But that wasn't so like, the, but it wasn't seemingly because though, right? Like actually because the probation committee recommended three months in prison. Well, or even better, like if the fear here is like, okay, well, we're gonna send a message and like future judges are gonna be like, even if the probation committee says you should get off with three months for a serious crimes, like we're gonna ignore it. Like somewhere along the line here, right? Like an argument needs to be mounted on the merits that 
it's either good or bad to send people to jail for a long time for committing serious crimes. And you know, you can certainly have cases, right? Like the, this woman who Trump pardoned, who was being sentenced to jail for a very long time for what really did not seem like particularly serious wrongdoing. Uh, but then you got six months for rape. Like that, that doesn't seem like enough time. Like that's why people were mad. So I want to put a pin in what you just said, because I think that that is a much bigger thing. But I think that the kind of you go to war with the system you have thing, shockingly, the American public is not necessarily consistent in what they want out of a system in theory and what they actually say when given any particular question about the system, right? Like the argument against mandatory minimums, which has gotten a lot of purchase, not just among progressives, but among moderates and like intellectual conservatives over the last decade and has resulted in a lot of state reforms to kind of reduce those and create more flexibility in the system. The idea of that is the legislature, which is elected by the people, has a very blunt understanding of the criminal justice system. Judges, on the other hand, understand the individual facts of the case and like aren't, you know, the legislature and therefore can make a decision that is based on the individual facts of the case and can use their superior expertise and knowledge to do that. That kind of theoretical argument indicates to me that the fact that that's gotten purchase and that people aren't saying, no, 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 God damn it, we want 10 years in prison for sexual assault. We want that to be a legislative mandatory minimum. You shouldn't be able to sentence someone to less than that. Like, that indicates to me that in theory, people do want a certain amount of flexibility within the system, a certain amount of discretion. But like if you give them a choice of do you recall a judge who you know because he made a bad decision or no, they're not going to say, eh, in general, I would like judges to have some discretion and flexibility. They're going to say, no, I did not agree with that decision. I'm going to recall this judge. So a lot of the American Republic, uh, especially when we get to the non-legislative branches, is a weird balance between giving the people what they say they want, you know, at time A and giving the people what they say they want at time B. And I think that this is an example of that. Well, and I think then you see, because like all of this is happening, the the Brock Turner case is like early 2016. This is all pre-Harvey Weinstein, like uh, before Me Too was like a thing we had heard of. And I think it only, it becomes like a pretty tricky, interesting area for, you know, folks who are running this campaign who are thinking about like, well, how do we treat people who committed these kind of crimes as we're seeing not just, you know, a preppy Stanford swimmer, but also, you know, really high profile men who, you know, don't seem to be getting much punishment at all. Our editor, Laura McGann, wrote a great piece for us a few months back that looked at, you know, this like genre of magazine article that was kind of looking at like Me Too men in exile, where it turns out they just get to live in like really nice compounds in the Hamptons. And like it, it painted like a portrait of, you know, Charlie Rose is like stuck in wherever it is he's living in his very nice house. And it does raise this question of like, yeah, I don't think right now you see people saying like, yeah, 10 year mandatory minimum, like that's what we should have for sexual assault. But I think there is like a growing drive to say, well, we have to do something about it because right now the system doesn't seem to be doing the thing that we want it to do. And it's tension. I don't know exactly how it shakes out. I think a lot of it will honestly be shaped by like what we see happen to these people who are being you know, found guilty of sexual assault and like what happens next. But I think there is more of a drive for serious punishment and less discretion in that space of the judicial system versus other spaces where we've had this debate. But 
I, I don't know. It seems like it, it opens up the debate in like, well, how should we treat this if this is a system that seems to, you know, we're not talking about a population that is typically disadvantaged. We're talking about a population that is typically quite advantaged and brings those advantages with it into the judicial system. We better yes, take a second break <laughs> then get to the real, awesome. the real weeds. Awesome. You ever feel like you're paying a lot of money for sort of crappy, low-quality products? At Everlane, that doesn't happen. You can upgrade your go-tos and your style, make Everlane's classics your new favorites. They make what they call premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Uh, Everlane, they, they really they want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every step in the process, from the materials that their stuff is made out of to the ethical factories that they work with. And then because Everlane sells direct to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers, so the clothes, they look better, they cost less, and they last longer. The, the build quality is really important. So essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. Cashmere Crew is a great shirt. Their 100% human tee is amazing. I talk all the time about their Twill Weekender bag. I'm going on vacation next week. I will be packing mine. It's like an amazingly durable, great bag. And as the whole premise of, of Everlane is, like, you, you paying a fair price for really great stuff. So their timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. There's no frills, just quality and value. And right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash weeds. Plus, you get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash weeds. Everlane.com slash weeds. So, yes, to everything Sarah was highlighting. And I actually think we see this on two different prongs of criminal justice issues, right? I mean, one is the standard of proof that is used to proclaim somebody officially guilty, and the other is like the harshness of the consequences that are doled out when we are convinced that people are guilty. And, you know, I mean, I think generally we have progressives pushing for uh, more leniency in criminal sentencing. People talk about mass incarceration, then often with the implication that maybe they only really mean nonviolent drug offenders. But like as we endlessly document on Vox, most people in prison are in fact guilty of violent crimes of some form or another. And then you have a, a longstanding liberal concern with the just like actual procedural fairness of the criminal justice system, you know, the rights of the accused, uh, the high burden of proof that that prosecutors are supposed to meet, the conduct of police departments, um, et cetera, et cetera, The fact et cetera, that only 5 percent of cases go to trial. Right. And there's a – Apparent tension, I think, between that and both the the calls for you know harsher judgments on people like Brock Turner, but also the sort of the call to believe women, right? Which is, I think, not the standard that is normally used in the criminal justice system, and that that's where a lot of discomfort arises. I think for for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that. And I think the other thing is the flip side of discretion is that when institutions have discretion, they tend to exercise it in favor of the privileged and not in favor of the less privileged. The The argument in favor of standardizing sentences actually came out of California in the 70s because some judges were giving people like a sentence of a day. And they were like, what the, what the heck? This isn't what we, you know, we said this was a crime. We didn't mean for you to just say, yeah, but you're a good person. So I do, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. But I think it's also worth thinking about the purposes of criminal punishment specifically. You know, 
in theory, you can punish somebody as a deterrent to others or as a deterrent to themselves to like not offend again. You can punish them so that they can be rehabilitated and not want to offend again. You can just straight up like put them in prison where they can't offend again because they're being watched all the time, theoretically, or you can do it simply to punish them. And I think that that last thing in technocratic criminal justice reform circles often gets short shrift because it's hard to like empirically justify that. It seems like it's this very reactionary desire that people have. But it's if you look at it more favorably, it's we as a society think that this is wrong. It is important to us not only that we send a message that this is wrong, but that people who violate that norm understand that they have done something wrong, that they are unwelcome in the community. So I, I kind of get it. The question is, which one of those four are we actually going for in any particular case? And it seems like the desire on sexual assault stuff really is with the fourth one. There isn't a lot of attention to, is this actually going to deter future sexual assault? Luckily, no one appears to be making the argument that, like, you know, sentencing Brock Turner to three months encouraged other people to commit rapes who wouldn't have been encouraged otherwise, um, which is good because it's not that's not how it works. Like there isn't a lot of argument that Brock Turner will be rehabilitated. If there were, putting him on the sex offender registry would be a big problem. But that kind of punitiveness that in the rest of the criminal justice conversation is kind of seen as this like shameful thing to want is exactly what we want out of the criminal justice system when it comes to sexual assault. And like, I don't know how that tension is resolved. It does not seem extremely likely to me that you can push for both of those things at once. I mean, you know more about this than I do, Dara, because you do more on criminal justice. But like, I think one thing, you know, people working on this, like the recall folks would probably support is like, well, why not for these particular cases? Because the judicial system works in favor of the privilege. Why not send mandatory minimums for like those particular cases? I would love to see a law that said mandatory minimums only for white people. That would be hilarious. It would also be blatantly unconstitutional. Like the whole problem with discretion is that you want to try to counteract both the biases that individuals will bring into the system and the way that inequities compound. Like a lot of the problem with overstandardizing sentences is that if you were in a neighborhood where there were police on every corner waiting to bust your butt for shoplifting at 11, you're going to have a longer criminal record and your next sentence is going to be longer than somebody who was still shoplifting but didn't get caught because they were not in an overpoliced neighborhood. So like it's important to try to counteract that. But at the same time, you can't explicitly make laws based on race, even if those are no, supposed no, I'm not to be on race, right. but based no, but on it's the, just, but it's really, yeah. it's like, unfortunately, every indication we have of who is genuinely going to be a threat to the community, which is like the basis on which you're supposed to be exercising discretion. And like, you know, that's a good basis. That's what prevents people from, you know, from like letting the wrong guy out. I haven't seen any people like brilliantly hacking this so that those same things can instead be stacked against the people who the system is already favoring. Like that's an interesting concept and I'm not totally sure how it would work. And I'm hoping that a bunch of brilliant criminologists listen to the weeds and are finally like, my time. <laughs> so I, I was really interested in this chart that I saw on a, a piece that Herman Lopez did for Vox a while ago, which was 22 charts and maps on, on mass incarceration. And he's showing uh, just like how much time people serve in jail in the United States for various different offenses. And so back in 1985, the average murderer does uh, six years, a little bit a little bit less than, than six years. And all the other crimes are in the like one to three year range. And then from 85 to 2000,
2000, there is this general trend toward more punitiveness. Uh, so we get more punitive about robbers, assaults, burglaries, sexual assault, and we get a lot more punitive about murder. Right. So the, the average sentence doled out to a murderer goes from a little bit below six years to almost 17 years. And, you know, this is such a steep increase that, like, looking back on the early 80s and being like, you get six years for murder? Like, seems crazy low. Like, mur murder is a pretty serious crime. I don't know. But since 2000, the trajectory has changed. Uh, murder has bounced up and down, but it's about flat on average. Uh, we've gotten a little less harsh on robbery, about flat on non-sexual assault, flat on robbery, flat on drugs. The one crime that has continued to tick up is, is sexual assault, which is now getting about seven years on average. So I shouldn't say now, actually. This, this data ends in 2010. But so by 2010, we are punishing sexual assault more harshly than we punished murder in the early 80s, which is an interesting trend. And it does show, though, that it is – it's conceivable, right, and I think has been happening between 2000 and 2010 to get harsher on sexual assault while not getting harsher in general, right? And then from 2000 to 2010, there was a, a general tendency to like steady as she goes on murder, to get a little laxer on sort of property crimes, robbery and burglary, flat on plain assault and, and drug crimes, but harsher on sexual assault. And then since 2010, we've had a lot of states not reduce sentences for drug crimes, but reduce the scope of what drug things are crimes at all. Well, um, and also reduce the the sentences for drug crimes. There have been a lot of, of mandatory minimum state drug reforms and also, frankly, for property crimes. Like right. the felony th theft threshold has been cut in a lot of cases. So, I mean, this just makes me wonder, like, is it is it true that we sort of all have to, like, swim in one direction on the criminal justice issue? Or is it, in fact, totally possible to, like, get harsher and harsher on sexual assault and say this is a really serious problem while not getting any harsher on other violent crimes and getting laxer on less violent crimes? I mean, I don't know if that's, like, the right solution, but it, it seems like perhaps the tension is, like, less tense than it might be, and you can just handle these things differently. So here's the thing that I think isn't talked about enough and that I would love to see a conversation among, you know, the, the people who are like pushing for both criminal justice reform and greater recognition of sexual assault as a serious crime to deal with is on the margin for any given offense, any like increase in arresting people, charging people, that kind of thing with the rest of the system staying the same is going to fall disproportionately on black and Hispanic men. A world in which we ask for the criminal justice system to treat sexual assault with more punitiveness is going to, on the numbers, result in fewer like Brock Turners serving longer sentences than like some 19-year-old Latino high school dropout. The question that that raises for me is how do we think about those cases? Because in general, the criminal justice reform movement is motivated by an understanding that people are better than the worst thing they've done in their lives, that they can be rehabilitated, that they are constrained by their circumstances, that it is not fair to punish people inequitably, even if you theoretically disagree with the thing that they have done. But there's also a serious problem with like under-policing and under-punishment of, say, murder in communities that are otherwise over-policed that results in not respecting the lives of their victims. And, like, there is simultaneously a problem with not taking 
whatever the black on black crime canard, like there's a serious problem when the victims of murder in over-policed communities don't have their murderers arrested and brought to justice. And I think that the same can be said for like victims of sexual assault in those communities. That said, if we're allowing those offenders to be punished, it's going to take bigger changes in the system to ensure that the Brock's Turner of the world are going to be punished with the same regularity. And so I think it's really worth thinking seriously about do we actually believe that sexual offenders are irredeemable and therefore as many of them as we can punish for their crimes, the better? Or do we believe that there is redeemability there and therefore maybe we shouldn't be slagging a bunch of people with a long prison sentence if we know that there are other people who aren't going to be arrested and prosecuted for that well, crime? I, how do we deal with people of privilege who often like do very well in this situation? Like It seems like I think a lot of people when they think about, well, we need stronger sentencing for sexual assaulters. They're thinking of people who have been in this position of privilege to, you know, both perpetrate this assault and get away with it and who then often have that same privilege, like when they are entering into a courtroom of, you know, this kind of idea, like, well, you know, such a bright future and those sort of things. And that seems like a pretty tricky thing to do, but like an issue that has to get sorted out in some way, because it seems like that is kind of at the core of a lot of this, is thinking through these people who have had a lot of privilege in their life, who bring that privilege with them into the courtroom. Like, how do we deal with that population if we feel like they are the ones who have not been getting the sentencing that we think is appropriate for them, even if that sentencing like, is literally just punishment for a bad thing that they have done? I feel like, Matt, this is the time for well, your like, super lukewarm. What well, yeah, I mean, so th- th- I guess... <sighs> I guess the thing that occurs to me about this is that a lot of the time in America, possibly other countries too, to be honest, I don't know. I feel like we use harshness of penalties as a substitute for like catching bad guys, right? And that if you are thinking about it, like on the one hand, yes, three to six months is a relatively light prison sentence as far as prison sentences go. On the other hand, like I would really not want to do three to six months in prison, like, to be honest. Especially in an overcrowded California And I think, like, most people are like that. Like, prison seems pretty bad, even for a relatively short span of time. But that the real issue in these kind of situations is that people feel correctly that they are most likely going to get away with it, right? And that possibly if we were actually sanctioning every campus rapist with three months in jail, that that would be a very powerful deterrent. It's, I mean, I don't know like how you would do it, right? But I'm like assuming magic wand, right? That like you have clairvoyance and immediacy and like everybody knows they're going to get caught. An equivalent of the, like the, the Hawaii Hope program where instead of going in for like a, you know, blood, blood and urinalysis test every week, there is like a survey sent to your sexual partner the previous night. Did you consent? Yeah, I mean, that's fl- I, I, I don't I don't want to be jokey about this. But, you know, but I mean, you really see this in murder, right? I mean, this is a, a ghetto sized great book that, you know, really homes in on this with, with regard to the most most serious kinds of, of uh, criminal activity. But that it's like police departments don't catch that many criminals. Yeah, there's actually a, a really good uh, investigation that came out this week at The Post uh, with by Wesley Lowry that gets some more recent and multi-city data on this. And it's just staggering in terms of if you think that 
the criminal justice system is law and order, the extent to which actual murders are like result in people getting arrested, charged and prosecuted is just it's ridiculous. Right. Now, so there's like a rational agent model in which you're like, well, if you only catch one in a hundred rapists, but you execute the rapist, so you do catch on average, that's a pretty harsh penalty. And so it's going to have a powerful deterrent. And then I think there's like real life where it's like catching a hundred percent of the rapists and punishing them relatively lightly would be a much more powerful, practical deterrent and in particular would have the kind of downstream effects that people want of like setting the norms of behavior in a different place from where they currently are. Now, I don't know that I have like a practical – Dara was talking about this uh, HOPE program in Hawaii, which is an early release parole type thing where because the alternative to being in the HOPE program is being in jail, you can stick people with a really sort of stringent drug testing regime. It seems like a good idea, but not one that has like an obvious applicability to this situation. But, but I think, I mean, just – so people know, like, Matt has just laid through very logically and in a common sense way something that is also totally borne out by empirics. Like, the mantra that the criminal justice reform types, the, like, technocrats who work in the states have is that classically people thought that justice should be swift, certain, and severe. The current thinking is that it should be swift, certain, and proportionate, that, like, the severity does not actually do nearly as much to deter crime as the swiftness and certainty of punishment. And like in the current system, not only do we not have the certainty, we don't have the, the swiftness in large part because like trials, you know, like plea bargaining takes a long time or trials take a long time. And like that isn't necessarily something that can be reduced that much, though obviously there are cases where like people are going years without trial and that's not great. But the certainty does seem like the thing that could be dealt with. And Sarah, this kind of gets back to what you were saying about like this new awareness of these cases that in retrospect were gotten away with. Like maybe the good news here is that as people stop hearing about cases of rape and going, ah, oh, gee, that's just the way this dude is. Like it's an unfortunate part of power that you have to deal with that. We could in theory start seeing more of these cases get reported in a timely fashion and like then it would be up to police departments. How much of your efforts do you put into making sure that sexual assault complaints get tracked down and heard, which opens up a whole nother can of worms about how police deal with sexual assault that is probably another episode. Well, I guess we, we don't have another episode. Now we have another episode. We have another episode. Next week, will just be my hour-long monologue. Sarah will have her <laughs> baby and Matt will be in Spain and I'll talk to myself about sexual assault. Well, with that, thanks for listening, everybody. Always uh, check us out in the Weeds Facebook group. I feel like this was an unusually indecisive, in some ways, conversation. Uh, so, so very interested in, in what other people have to say, other things we, we could check out on this. Um, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Best of luck to Sarah. We'll see you guys in the fall. <laughs> Hopefully we'll not be back uh, too soon. I mean, we want know. you back, obviously, but... You know. We can give your baby tiny weeds headphones. <laughs> it's going to be great. Jose was He's in the studio. He's going to get a little white paper, too. I, I brought Jose into the studio one time. He loved it. He only broke one of the microphones. Right. It was well, fine. Maybe I'll bring That's the like baby Tuesday by the weeds. <laughs> yes, baby weeds. And uh, with that, uh, the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>